and welcome to Top Hole, the podcast about Eleanor M. Rent Dyer, the chalet school, and anything vaguely connected. I'm Deborah Lofus, and I'm a fan. This week we're looking at EBD's historical novel, Elizabeth the Gallant. Or, I suppose, Elizabeth the Gallant. Anyway, the usual provisos apply with respect to pronunciation, spoilers, and bonkersness. Please see episode zero. I first came across Elizabeth the Gallant in its abridged form in the second coronet book for girls, where it is included as an extended short story with illustrations under the title Cavalier Maid. It struck me at the time that this was not like EBD's usual work. It's not set in a school, it's not even set during the present day, and it's about adults rather than children. Subsequently, I found that this was probably EBD's first attempt at a novel for adults. It wasn't her first historical novel, The Little Mary Jose gets that honour, but that's a much slimmer tale. Elizabeth the Gallant is, by EBD's standards, quite complex. To put it in the context of what else EBD was working on at around the same time, Elizabeth the Gallant was published in 1935, the same year as The New House at the Chalet School. This was potentially the last in the Chalet School series, given that Joe Bettany, the central character, leaves the school at the end of this book, so it's possible EBD was thinking of branching out. And it's also possible that, having completed Elizabeth the Gallant, she decided that actually historical fiction wasn't for her. Because the thing is, EBD literally used to make up her stories as she went along. The characters came first and told their own story through her, so the plot of each book evolved as she was writing it. This technique produces vivid, engaging characters, but it's not brilliant for a coherent narrative. On the few occasions when EBD manages a coherent narrative, such as in the Susanna adventure, her characters are that bit more restrained and not quite as alive, so I completely understand why she used the technique she did, and generally speaking I wouldn't have it any other way. The trouble is it doesn't entirely work when your characters need to fit in with actual historical events. I think EBD may have found this aspect of writing an historical novel something of a challenge. The action begins in September 1643 and effectively ends in the spring of 1645 with a little four years later update right at the very end to let us know of the king's execution. The circumstances of that time would not have been as familiar to EBD as, say, the environment of a girls' school. And of course in 1643 they all talked very differently and EBD does not let us forget this for a nanosecond. There is a point early in Joe Bettany's writing career when someone suggests she should write a historical novel, and Joe, who is, when it comes to writing EBD's alter ego, replies that it would require a lot of research, because it's not enough to put in the occasional gadzooks and expect this to adequately convey the historical period. Would that it were. Elizabeth the Gallant is chock full of characters talking not only in period language, but also with regional accents, as the action travels from Yorkshire to Oxford to London to Deptford to Berkshire to Bristol. EBD faithfully renders all of this speech into print, making dialogue of the sort which really needs subtitles. Her characters also write to each other, in letters afflicted by not only period language and regional accents, but also extreme vagaries of spelling. And all of this spills over into the prose text. It's not unreadable, but it doesn't read naturally. I don't think EBD found this easy to write, and it's certainly not easy to read. EBD also may not have been wholly conversant with how people actually spoke and wrote in the 1640s. Paragraph 2 of the book 
refers to a bowling alley, which Sir Christopher had made, quote, for the pleasuring of his young French wife, unquote. Pleasuring has a very definite sexual connotation in the 21st century, and it had this at the time EBD was writing. Indeed, according to reliable online sources, it had acquired this sense by the 1610s, well before the period in which this novel is set. But EBD uses it to mean give pleasure to, and nobody edited it out. EBD's editors, if indeed they even existed, were never very proactive, though, in picking up amendments and inconsistencies. This was the only one of her books to be published by Thornton Butterworth, so maybe this particular publisher didn't have editors. It's a shame, because some editing could have made this book much more readable and therefore much more enjoyable. But this is carping. Elizabeth the Gallant is a cracking story, and Elizabeth herself is brave, fierce and adventurous. Of course, she faints from time to time, but only romantically, and actually her husband faints as often as she does. And she is still the same Elizabeth after her marriage and motherhood. When the time comes for the household to flee, as it does more than once, she acts quickly, efficiently and decisively. Having earned her title of the gallant quite early in the book, she can justifiably retain it for the remaining 20 chapters. I tried hard to come up with a single sentence summary for the story. The best I could do was, frustrated teenager becomes royal messenger, eluding her pursuers by a marriage of convenience which results in love, inheritance and escape to America. But this really doesn't do the story justice. I don't normally recap the plot of a book in detail, but I think it's worth doing here, because quite apart from anything else, it's possible that this is an EBD story with which listeners are not very familiar. There is a reference on Abe Books, which offers a first edition for £1,000, to a 1950s reprint, but this isn't referenced in my Girls Gone By edition of 2006, so Abe Books may mean the shortened version in the Coronet Annual. So there are only really two editions of Elizabeth the Gallant available, and one is rare and expensive, while the other had a fairly limited print run. So, stripped of its archaic language and regional accents, the story runs thus. Chapter 1, September 1643. 17-year-old Elizabeth Felthwaite and her 13-year-old sister Althea are playing bowls in the sun. They are the only family left at Felthwaite Castle, as their father and brothers are off in the war, or in the case of one brother, at university, and their mother is attending the Queen at Oxford. Elizabeth is frustrated by her inability to get actively involved in the King's cause. News then comes that following the Royalist defeat at Gainsborough, their brother Geoffrey is missing and parliamentarian forces are likely to attack Felthwaite Castle looking for him. Elizabeth sends Althea to ring the curfew bell to summon loyal villagers. The castle must be prepared for siege. Elizabeth reviews the castle staff, three crying serving maids, two more standing aloof and silent, and various loyal retainers who are either elderly or of limited mobility. Elizabeth goes to the armoury, where there is some incomprehensible dialogue between Timothy from the West Country and Ralph from Yorkshire. They agree they need somewhere to hide Geoffrey when he arrives, but luckily Ralph knows about a secret room. When they open it, Geoffrey is already hiding there. This is such a good opening. It sets the scene, a royalist stronghold in Yorkshire, which is not necessarily secure in the face of attack. Elizabeth's character is established as strong, commanding and brave, and there's a plot twist right at the end of the chapter. In chapter two, Elizabeth must turn the secret chamber into a sick room because Geoffrey is badly wounded, without arousing suspicion among her staff. 
But while abstracting blankets from storage, she overhears the cold and aloof maid, Janet, talking to a bitter fanatic, that is, an enemy from the village. Janet has noticed that Elizabeth is fair-fettled, and as a result believes Geoffrey is hidden somewhere in the castle. Elizabeth then has to act normally for the rest of the day, before returning to her brother with food and medicine in the evening. She tends him through the night and his fever abates, at which point he remembers the dispatches he was carrying. Elizabeth and Ralph plan for Elizabeth to be in her chamber all of the following day on the pretext of being ill, after which Elizabeth will herself set off to take the dispatches. Come the following evening, Elizabeth tells Althea of the plan and dresses in her brother's clothes and the half-armour of her ancestor Lady Constance who fought at Cressy. But before Elizabeth can escape, Janet arrives, armed with a pistol. Elizabeth quickly overpowers her, forces her to say where spies are placed outside the castle and sets off. It's exciting stuff. Geoffrey is already wounded and the appearance of Janet and her pistol indicate the possibility of real danger to Elizabeth, danger which in fact then hangs over her for pretty much the entire book. In chapter 3, Elizabeth is riding a horse called Harkaway. She plans to take the dispatches to the King at Oxford, her route from Yorkshire being across Derbyshire and Leicestershire in the first instance. She gallops through the first crossroads to avoid being stopped and eventually arrives at a friendly inn. Here she rests, chops off her hair, changes her clothes, picks up some provisions and sets off again. At twilight she finds a ruined cottage to settle in for the night, but voices wake her and she realises she is being pursued. One officer leaves and Elizabeth overpowers the other by flinging her cloak over him and giving him the knee throw. If you Google knee throw, you will find yourself looking at a selection of tartan blankets to keep your legs warm. If you then amend the search to eliminate bedding, you find yourself looking at baseball coaching videos. However, searching on the knee throw fighting brings you to martial arts, although how Elizabeth became proficient in Thai kickboxing will, I'm afraid, have to remain a mystery. Anyway, as a result of Elizabeth's knee throw, the officer hits his head on the door sill, so she is able to leave. It is clear she must now avoid Derby, so she heads towards Stafford, a decision she has to make at a crossroads where her choices are Derby, Stafford, Newark or back the way she came. I was so intrigued by the geography of Elizabeth's journey that I spent some time with a road atlas, looking for a spot where Derby is to the south, Newark to the east and Stafford to the west give or take, I don't suppose the junction is bang on all four points of the compass, to try to work out where Elizabeth was, before noticing that a few paragraphs later she turns off towards Sudbury and rides through the night to Ashby de la Zouche. With these clues we can place her somewhere in the Peak District some 24 hours after she left Felthwaite Castle, 20 miles north of Bradford. This feels like impossibly fast travel, but it's a distance of around 60 miles, and apparently horses can do this, especially, I suppose, such an amazing beast as Harkaway. Ashby de la Zouche is in no way a sensible staging post for someone trying to get from the Peak District to Stafford, but then Elizabeth did have to dodge about a bit to evade capture. She was, after all, riding through enemy territory. After sleeping all day at Ashby and stocking up again on provisions, she sets off in the evening towards Tamworth, because she needs to skirt around Coventry. At daybreak, Elizabeth chances upon a friendly household, who provide a meal, a bath, some sleep and another meal, before saying farewell. Elizabeth is of course disguised as a young man, and the daughter of the house takes a shine to her, asking for a kiss, which Elizabeth obligingly provides squarely on the mouth. Once again, setting off in the evening, Elizabeth reaches Oxford at midday the next day, hands over her dispatches and faints. 
When she comes to, Prince Rupert himself kisses her hand and says, Madam, I salute one of the bravest ladies it has ever been my lot to meet. Frankly, I'm surprised Elizabeth didn't immediately swoon again. She does, at the start of Chapter 4, spend four days in bed at her mother's insistence. She then gets dressed up and is given her ancestor Lady Constance's pearls, you have earned them justly, says her mother, before being taken to meet the Queen, Henrietta Maria. Henrietta Maria talks with a French accent, which is even more impenetrable in print than the Yorkshire and West Country ones, but fortunately she sends Elizabeth off to play with her children and we don't have to hear much more from her. The king himself comes to find Elizabeth, and his conversation with her and his children depicts him as entirely just and fair, his sons, the future Charles II and James II, somewhat less so. Elizabeth remains at Oxford, playing with the royal children by day and sewing with the royal ladies in the evening. Then comes news of the Battle of Newbury and the death of her brother Humphrey. Chapter 5 opens with the assumption that readers will know what the Solemn League and Covenant was and why it roused indignation in royal circles. For those of us who are less knowledgeable, it was an agreement between the English Parliament and its Scottish equivalent in which the Scots promised aid provided they could keep their church and provided the English church was reformed along similar lines. Of more importance to the plot, the agreement caused division among parliamentarians, with some men leaving the parliamentary armies rather than taking the subsequent oath. Hold on to this knowledge, because it becomes important around about Chapter 9. But right now Elizabeth is commanded to the King's presence, and asked to take further dispatches, this time to London, from where she will travel by ship to Whitby, and thence home to Felthwaite Castle. Elizabeth says yes, and the King kisses her brow. Elizabeth sets off for London in chapter 6, but she is stopped on the high road. Harkaway the horse saves her by rearing and bolting, and Elizabeth leaves the high road in favour of lanes to get herself to St Albans. Now, I know there was no M40 at the time, I know she had to avoid the main roads, and I know she was once again forced to dodge about while travelling through enemy country, but really? Oxford to London via St Albans? On her way there, she overhears two men talking and realises that they are the same two officers she overheard back at the ruined cottage 150 miles away in Chapter 3. The one she took out with a knee throw, who is called Lionel Eccles, remember that name, has recovered and the two officers are still after her. From St Albans, Elizabeth safely reaches Golders Green in North London, but Captain Eccles has also travelled here, although he meets her without recognising her. Elizabeth changes her clothes at an inn, from where a neighbour will take her by cart to Pudding Lane, her final destination. But she arrives at Pudding Lane to the news that the man she is seeking has died and immediately faints. Fortunately, or unfortunately, we don't actually know at this point, into the arms of Captain Eccles. It was fortunately, because although this time he does recognise her, he makes no attempt to arrest her and simply sees her into the care of a neighbour. Phew, thinks the reader. And then it turns out that cold, aloof maid Janet, the traitor from Felthwaite Castle, which, just to remind you, is around 200 miles away, is also staying with this very neighbour. Is Elizabeth magnetic or something? I mean, what are the chances? Elizabeth and Janet immediately get into a physical fight, which Elizabeth, of course, wins, but this doesn't stop Janet escaping and locking her in. Elizabeth, showing great good sense, sews into her clothes the jewel she is carrying as a token while she is waiting to find out what will happen to her, and she resists interrogation by Tobias Whitworth. Left alone again, she escapes through a window, having been imprisoned in one of the few houses in the country which does not apparently have a secret passage, immediately bumps into Captain Eccles and faints. But Captain Eccles will not hand her back to Tobias Whitworth, 
and offers Elizabeth his protection and aid, saying, I do not war with women. What a man! Stopped by guards at the river, Thames, Captain Eccles pretends Elizabeth is his new wife, a pretense he maintains when they arrive at his uncle's house, resulting in his uncle insisting that Elizabeth must be carried over the threshold in Captain Eccles' arms. Elizabeth is not safe here, however, because stern Madame Burnett, Captain Eccles's grandmother, also lives in the house. Madame Burnett is keen for Elizabeth to stay, but Elizabeth herself is quick-witted enough to claim that as she is country-born, she is pining to leave the city and return home. Before they can leave to put Elizabeth onto an imaginary ship, however, the family's good friend, Tobias Whitworth, uh-oh, arrives. He recognises Elizabeth, and she and Lionel are only able to escape because an old family retainer holds him back. Elizabeth spots a boat on the Thames and swims out to it. She rows back to the bank for Captain Eccles, and the two of them escape in it, hunkering down when soldiers start shooting at the boat. Elizabeth and Captain Eccles have no plan, and no idea of where they can go to be safe, so when they arrive at Deptford they call at the first house they find. It subsequently becomes clear just how risky this strategy was, but luckily they have happened to knock on the door of the only royalist still in Deptford, Sir Timothy Mostyn, who takes them both in. In Chapter 9, Elizabeth has been very ill, it is now November, and Captain Eccles, now known as Lionel, has switched sides. He doesn't mention the Solemn League and Covenant, but this makes his defection more believable. Anyway, because of this, he needs to go to the King at Oxford, and leaves Elizabeth, whom everyone believes to be Lionel's wife, behind with Sir Timothy. Elizabeth remains in bed for two weeks before meeting her host. Sir Timothy tells her about his daughter Elizabeth, who refused to marry the man he had chosen for her and ran away and died. A few weeks later, his youngest son, called Lionel, also died. So Sir Timothy is a deeply moved to have found himself involved with another Elizabeth and Lionel, and b looking for someone he can name as his heir. He therefore asks Elizabeth to name her second son Guy Mostyn so he can inherit Sir Timothy's estate. Surprisingly, Elizabeth's head does not explode as a result of this exchange. What on earth was Sir Timothy thinking? Two young people clearly not very good at looking after themselves and staying out of trouble, arrive on his doorstep in the middle of the night and a few weeks later he has practically adopted them. The situation presents a dilemma to Elizabeth, who wonders if she should reveal all, that is, explain to Sir Timothy that she and Lionel are not in fact married, before deciding that this is too hard to deal with right now. She spends her convalescence listening to Moggy, the old nursemaid, telling historical tales and reading out letters from her son in New England. Elizabeth then receives a letter herself from Lionel. It's a proposal of marriage, to which her mother, somewhat stiffly in a second letter, consents. Elizabeth spends the next chapter reading about Lionel's adventures and thinking about his proposal. He has met the king, startling him by his resemblance to the king's long-dead brother. Of course Lionel resembles the king's long-dead brother. EBD set herself up nicely there for a later reveal that Lionel is somehow royalty, but she appears to have forgotten about this. In December there is news of Pym's sickness, another reference which assumes historical knowledge which not all her readers will have had, Pym being a prominent parliamentarian, described by the Encyclopaedia Britannica as the architect of Parliament's victory. There are preparations in Sir Timothy's house for Christmas, and Elizabeth starts to long for Lionel, who arrives in a storm on Christmas Eve, kisses Elizabeth and faints. On Christmas Day, Elizabeth and Lionel explain their true situation to Sir Timothy and his friend the Doctor. Lionel only has a few days with them, so they all agree that the couple should marry in a week's time. 
Lionel recounts his adventures. He has been to the court of Louis XIV, which involved pretending to be a village idiot, being thrown overboard in the Channel and washing up on the coast of Brittany. In chapter 15, the elderly nursemaid Moggy undertakes to look into the smoke to see what lies ahead for Elizabeth. There is some debate about whether this is witchcraft, but Moggy does it anyway. I strongly suspect that this sort of intuition or seeing was something which EBD felt she ought to disapprove of, but secretly really wanted to be true. She uses it in Highland Twins at the Shallow School, and here she allows Moggy to forecast with accuracy that things will go well for Elizabeth. This is, of course, a bit vague and could mean anything, really. So Moggy also foresees the King's execution, although she keeps this from Elizabeth, telling only Lionel. Next day, Elizabeth and Lionel have a romantic moment in the linen cupboard and then find they can't wait a week to get married, so this is arranged for the following day. It is supposed to be a secret because, of course, Elizabeth and Lionel are supposed to be married already, but one of the servants blabs, so it turns into a jolly day of celebration for all. Lionel and Elizabeth have two days of wedded bliss before Elizabeth's brother Geoffrey turns up, saying Lionel must come away with him straight away. Geoffrey agrees to try to arrange for Althea to join them at Sir Timothy's. There is some political discussion and then Geoffrey and Lionel leave. In chapter 19, Lord Felthwaite, Elizabeth's father, writes to Sir Timothy, thanking him for taking in Althea and appointing him guardian to both Althea and Elizabeth. There are also letters from Geoffrey and Lionel, indicating that Althea is on her way. Elizabeth begins to learn housewifely arts and Gregory, the blabbing servant, travels to Gravesend to see if he can meet the ship from Whitby on which Althea is travelling. He reports that the ship has been sighted and then goes back to Gravesend to meet it and escort Althea to Sir Timothy's. It is snowing hard so nobody expects them to arrive but of course they do. Time skips forward to the spring. Fighting has begun again and Elizabeth is expecting a baby. In May, Lionel writes that he is hoping to visit soon and escort them all to the Queen's Court, which is now based in Exeter. Sir Timothy is not keen on travelling such a long way, but recognises that they are not really safe staying at Deptford. Is there not your own manor near Marlborough? suggests Moggy. Yes, of course. Sir Timothy owns another house, which he had entirely forgotten about. It's in a royalist area and definitely the best place for them to go, so a secret plan is hatched. And then Joan, one of the maids, does not return to work from her father's, a man known to be a parliamentarian. They decide they must leave the next day, but Joan arrives having fled her father and says they must all leave immediately. Elizabeth calmly takes charge and Sir Timothy gets them all out via a secret passage to the place where his coach is hidden. By noon next day they are at Maple Durham, overnighting at Reading and arriving at Shentry, Sir Timothy's other house, at the end of the chapter. Several months later, we reach chapter 22. Elizabeth has been safely delivered of a son, but there has been no word from Lionel and a royalist defeat at Master Moor. The defeat at Newbury is followed by word of Lionel, who arrives that evening to be met in the garden by Althea, who tells him he has a son. There is a happy reunion, but Lionel is concerned that Sir Timothy has aged. After sharing the war news, Lionel introduces his companion, Giles, who may possibly be a suitor for the 14-year-old Althea. Lionel is seeking to take his family to the Netherlands as soon as possible because Elizabeth is in danger if the war ends in royalist defeat. Althea and Giles, in what is surely one of the shortest romances in recorded history, spend four days in each other's company before Giles asks Sir Timothy, Althea's guardian, if he can pay his addresses to Althea. They are married two days later, just before Lionel and Giles depart, and Sir Timothy himself dies. 
He has effectively divided his estate between the two sisters, although obviously in their husbands' names. Time passes. By early December, Elizabeth and Althea's father has died. Moggy is ill, but survives for a quiet Christmas. Archbishop Lord, the subject of Elizabeth's mission to London, is executed in January. It's spring. It's June. And then Moggy's son writes again from New England, inviting them all over, just around the time that news comes through of the Battle of Naseby and the Royalists' final defeat. The final chapter of the book starts with Lionel's arrival via a secret passage. He immediately faints, but quickly recovers to explain that they must all leave immediately because Tobias Whitworth, remember him, is on his way. They escape via the secret passage, but meet an old enemy of Lionel's in the woods. There is a fight, and the enemy escapes. But Elizabeth brings him down with a well-flung stone and binds and gags him. The escapees meet Gregory and the horses and start their journey to Moggy's other son in Bristol, travelling in another baffling bit of geography. Remember, they set out from near Marlborough in Wiltshire via Gloucester and losing all their horses on the way. They have one encounter en route with soldiers, but Moggy resourcefully lies her way out of this and ultimately they reach her son in Bristol safely. Two months later, they sail to the New World to wait for the restoration of the king and the property they inherited from Sir Timothy. Four years later... News reaches them of Charles I's execution, and Lionel gives Elizabeth the king's final message to her. "'Twas that thou wert to remember he ever remembered thee and commended thee in his prayers to God as one of the bravest women of England. He bade thee rear stout, loyal lads and lasses, and never forget that England loved thee too. So the happy ending is tinged with sadness, because how shocking that such a lovely man as King Charles should have been executed— and in this respect, Elizabeth the Gallant is more nuanced than EBD's children's stories. There is also proper kissing in this book, which sets it apart from her usual fare, and an implication of more than this in the scene at Oxford when the king asks Elizabeth to go on her second mission. My Lord Goring possessed an evil reputation, and Lord Felthwaite was not minded that his lovely girl should come under his influence. Then he remembered that even Goring, roué though he was, was little likely to interfere with the king's own personal messenger, and his hand fell idly to his side, and he watched the man opposite quietly. EBD tells us nothing explicit here, but the words evil reputation and roué, which means a debauched man, are enough of a hint of more adult goings-on. And all the characters here are adults, even Althea is a married woman by the time she flees England, albeit a very young one. But of course we only ever enter Lana and Elizabeth's bedroom when one of them is sick and the other sleeping in a trundle bed. EBD is not, though, as coy about Elizabeth's pregnancy as she was when writing for her chalet school audience. Whereas at the chalet school, the only clue prior to a baby's birth is often just that the pregnant character is wearing a large shawl, in this book, for adults, we know about Elizabeth's pregnancy almost as soon as she does, and there are subsequent references to her condition and impending motherhood. And pregnancy and motherhood do not stop Elizabeth from being something of an action hero. As a 17-year-old, she took out an officer with a knee throw. As a mother, she takes one out with a well-flung stone. This is so refreshing. So often adventurous girls become boring mothers, but here Elizabeth stays true to herself. The girl who swam across the Thames to fetch a boat to escape in is the same woman who crossed the Atlantic to find a safe haven for her family. Elizabeth is one of EBD's best characters, certainly if you look at what she does rather than what she says. And this brings us back to the language EBD uses. If she had set her historical novel in a later period, this would have been much less of an issue. But of the obvious ones, Baroness Auxey was still writing about the French Revolution and Georgette Heyer led the way in novels about Regency England. 
And I can see the appeal of the English Civil War if you perceive it as a fight for the glamour of royalty against the dour, humourless parliamentarians. Maybe EBD was inspired by the wedding of Prince George, Duke of Kent, to Princess Marina of Greece and Denmark, broadcast on the radio in 1934 and doubtless covered in multiple magazines. Maybe it was turning 40 and thinking, if I don't do it now, I never will. Maybe it was just her favourite period in history. We'll never know, just as we'll never know why she decided that maybe historical novels weren't for her. But I am glad we got to meet Elizabeth the Gallant this one time. Well, and a second time. Because EBD effectively gives her younger readers a trailer for Elizabeth the Gallant in her 1937 book, Caroline II, set in Janeway's The Craziest School in Britain, which will doubtless one day get its own top hole episode. The girls from Janeway's visit Felthwaite Manor, not Felthwaite Castle. They see Elizabeth's portrait and hear Elizabeth's story from one of her relatives, Constance Felthwaite, presumably named for the Lady Constance who fought at Cressy, whose half-armour Elizabeth wore on her initial escape from the castle. Elizabeth's portrait was apparently painted a couple of years before she became a royal messenger. She is described as being about 15 in the painting, with grey eyes, steadfast and serene, and a serious air, even though her lips were smiling. Her brother Geoffrey's portrait shows a young man with laughing eyes and a humorous quirk to the lips that was missing from her sisters. Elizabeth is, I suppose, quite serious. Certainly the book lacks any intentional humour, which is unusual for EBD. Perhaps she felt this was inappropriate in a book for adults. Perhaps this is why the story feels not quite so EBD-ish as her other works. It's about danger and high stakes. She uses the word vomit. There are fights and injuries. It seems a long way from the chalet school, until you realise that everyone is eating weird food and talking languages you don't understand, and at that point we're back in familiar territory. I wish EBD had had another go with this. She couldn't have known, but she had another 30-odd years of writing left to her, and I think she may have got a tiny bit bored of chalet school books towards the end. If she could have got into the swing of writing historical novels as well, we might all have benefited. As it is, there's just Elizabeth the Gallant, riding fearlessly through the night in the service of her king, and then fainting. There is an awful lot of fainting in this book. In fact, I think I need to go and have a lie down to recover. You have been listening to Top Hole, written and presented by Deborah Lofus. Music and production by Kit Lofus. You can email us at topholepodcast at gmail.com. Top Hole is a Lofus Towers production.